0: Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. This week we're playing an updated episode number 347, Why You Should Not Open a Restaurant. It features the best-selling food writer Kenji Lopez-Alt telling us all about his adventures as a first-time restaurateur. And then at the end of the original episode, you'll hear a recent follow-up interview that'll give you even more reasons to never, ever open a restaurant. One quick thing before we start, we are bringing Freakonomics Radio Live to Philadelphia on June 6th and London on September 7th. For tickets, go to Freakonomics.com slash live. You'll also find information there for our upcoming shows in San Francisco, Los Angeles and Chicago. Again, freeeconomics.com/ slash live. And now here's why you shouldn't open a restaurant. Some people just can't leave well enough alone. Consider, for instance, the case of the famous food writer, the one who used the scientific method to take apart everything we know about cooking and put it back together.
1: If you use vodka in place of some of the water in your pie crust, you end up with a dough that is much flakier and much lighter.
0: He investigated whether the key ingredient in New York pizza
1: really is the water. So I did a full double-blind experiment where I got water starting with perfectly distilled water, and then up to various levels of dissolved solids inside the water. What we basically ended up finding was that the water makes almost no difference compared to other variables in the dough. He found that the secret to General Tso's chicken lay in geometry. The geometry of food is important because one of the big things is surface area to volume ratio.
0: And he explored the relationship between meat and salt. He proved why it's important to salt a hamburger
1: at the last minute on the surface of the meat. We rented a baseball pitching machine that would throw uh, hamburgers at the wall at 45 miles per hour. And You'll see that the salted hamburger kind of bounces off the wall like a rubber ball, whereas the burger that has salt only on the outside kind of splatters.
0: This was the man who finally brought science into the kitchen in a way that non-scientists could appreciate. It helped that his work was fun, not preachy, and delicious. We interviewed him a while back for an episode called Food Plus Science Equals Victory.
1: I think a lot of people think of science as sort of the opposite of tradition or the opposite of natural. And really, it's not. He had just published his first cookbook,
0: a massive thing called The Food Lab, which went on to win a James Beard Award. His reputation and reach only grew. But then something else beckoned. Was it opportunity or a trap? It's
1: that temptation you can't resist. Today on Freakonomics Radio, the food writer who flew too close to the flame. My name is James Kenji Lopez-Alt. I am a food writer who also happens to run a restaurant right now. And everything's been going just great, hasn't it? These problems are insurmountable. Like, how the f*** are we going to fix this? From Stitcher and Dubner Productions, this is Freakonomics
0: Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Kenji Lopez-Alt grew up in New York in a family of scientists, and he went off to MIT to study biology. He got a little bored, maybe burnout, and during the summers started working in restaurant kitchens in Boston.
1: After college, he worked in an architecture firm for a bit. For a few months, yeah, like half a year maybe. And then back to restaurant kitchens. My very first restaurant job was at a place called Fire and Ice. It's a Mongolian grill, so I was a knight of the round grill. I stood in the middle of a giant cast iron grill and cooked stir-fried food for people and flipped asparagus tips into the air and stuff. Over the next several years, he worked
0: in a series of higher-end restaurants in Boston. You know, after
1: that, that was the end of my culinary career, or my cooking career.
0: He began building a career as a food writer at Cooks Illustrated and America's Test Kitchen. Then, on the food site Serious Eats, he started a column called The Food Lab. He wasn't expecting to turn into a food writing rock star.
1: I absolutely wasn't expecting it. You know, I was a freelance writer living in a one bedroom apartment with no windows in Brooklyn at the time.
0: Now, after doing all that and having that platform mm-hmm. and enjoying it, what made you think it was a good idea to not only get back into the restaurant business, but open your own restaurant?
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, you know, it's that temptation you can't resist. It's like, oh, what if I just went back into the cooking for a little while? Um, would I be able to do this? You know, so I had, I had a daughter. Um, she's 17 months old now. Congratulations! Um, and, oh, thank you. Um, and when she was born, my wife and I decided that she would continue to work and I would be the, um, the at-home parent. So I've been a stay-at-home dad for the last 17 months, you know, about like six months into that, um, I was approached by some friends of friends who um, owned a bar in San Mateo um, near where we live, uh, and they were interested in opening up a beer hall, uh, and they were looking for a chef partner. And so I thought, oh, you know, this might be something fun I could do um, in my spare time, which, you know, you don't have too much spare time with a, with a baby on your hands, but I thought this could be something fun and this is a good opportunity, relatively low risk. Mainly it was because... My wife and I um, sort of longed for a place like this in San Mateo, family-friendly, casual, upscale um, place. Uh, And that was the concept that they were working on. Um, So it seems sort of perfect for me and um, initially, I thought my involvement would be relatively minimal. Um, I would work <laughs> on some menus. I would use lend my name um, to the menu. You know, what, what was actually really surprising to me was that I, I, when I first signed on with them, I sent a, a short little tweet saying, hey, like, this is happening. Um, like, so I'm opening a restaurant, something like that. Eater picked it up. A bunch of other publications picked it up. And then all of a sudden, it became... Not Kenji Lopez Alt is partnering with these two guys who are opening a restaurant. Um it became Kenji Lopez Alt is opening a restaurant. <laughs> and then I was like, oh uh-huh. man, like <laughs> I guess I'm really gonna get sucked into this.
0: Okay, so the restaurant is called Worst Hall, W-U-R-S-T. So first of all, for those who haven't been to San Mateo, California, just give us a a quick sense of the vibe of the place and then we'll get into the restaurant and why the choices were made to have a German beer hall with sausages.
1: Yeah, well, San Mateo is a uh, is a city that's basically dead center between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. My wife works at Google, and um, so she works down in Silicon Valley. Um, we initially moved up into the city, um, and her commute was crazy. So we're like, "All right, we'll move down to San Mateo." Um, um, and you know, if you if you look at sort of the real estate curve. Um, very expensive in, San, well, very expensive everywhere, but extremely expensive in San Francisco, extremely expensive in Silicon Valley, and San Mateo and a couple of the surrounding cities are like, there's a small dip. So we're like, all right, we can, that's where we can afford to live, and that's where um, you know, my wife's commute will be all right. And so I think there's actually a lot of people um, in our um, situation there right now.
0: Um, why a German beer hall? Why was that the right concept? Or why was that the concept they wanted?
1: Well, it's two factors. One of them is the space itself. Um, we're located in a really nice old historic building, lots of nice light, so it it seemed very conducive to this um, beer hall atmosphere. The other thing is that my partner, Adam Simpson, he is really into beer. Um, you know, and finally, beer halls are kind of just popular right now. So it seemed like a concept that worked in the space that worked with Adams knowledge base, um, and it seemed to be something that was hot and kind of lacking in the San Mateo area.
0: So far, so good, right? So for everyone out there who's thinking, hey, maybe I should open a
1: restaurant. We asked Kenji Lopez-Alt, what's the first step? So the first step to opening a restaurant is don't. Opening a restaurant is a series of putting out fires every single day. Um, even, Even once you're open, it's still a series of putting out fires. Step one, don't. Okay, so can you walk us through the opening process? What kind of work goes into those preparatory weeks, months, I assume? So the the first step is you have to have uh, a reason for people to believe that you're going to succeed and to give you money to do it because it's not cheap to open a restaurant. Uh, And then from there, it's, um, you know, working with the architects and designers and doing all the build-out, which inevitably takes way more time than you expect. And for us, we had this extra problem because we're in this really old building and the previous tenants uh, and the landlord... They didn't take the best care of the space. You know, but working back from from my side, from the, from the kitchen perspective, initially a lot of it was um, conceptualizing, like, how German do we want to be? How California do we want to be? Um, because we knew we sort of wanted to do both. Figuring out what the service style was going to be and how customers are going to order and really thinking to ourselves, all right, like, when people come in here, what are they coming in to do? Initially... You know, when Adam and my other partner Tyson Mao, when they were um, thinking of beer hall, they thought, right, this is going to be essentially a bar. Some people may be coming to have like a nice meal, uh, but most people will be coming to drink and have some food on the side, and that's sort of what the initial menu was designed around: a selection of sausages, um, a couple sandwiches, some appetizers to share. So now he got to work creating a menu. I had developed the initial opening menu um, on my own in my home kitchen um, before we had even hired any sort of kitchen staff. Um, And I I had like a—I'm pretty methodical, so I had like a recipe booklet written out, um, everything done in metric units, um, something that anybody could look at and replicate, you know? Part of the idea was like, because it's going to be relatively low-priced and high-volume, the kitchen has to be able to sort of run itself, even without like very, very, very— minute oversight. What
0: about the the sausage making itself? I mean, that's a big component. Um, can you just talk about how involved you were in the design and execution and maybe experimentation and figuring out how to not only make the sausages that you wanted, but how they were
1: going to be prepared? Yeah. From the start, you know, we knew that we weren't going to be able to make the sausages in-house because we didn't have the facilities. So in order to make a large volume of sausage, you need to have a dedicated refrigerated room where you can grind and mix and stuff and everything. Because if sausage mixture gets too warm while you're forming it, it doesn't bind properly um, and your sausages end up kind of crumbly and dry. So it was literally like physically impossible for us to make sausages in-house. So very early on, we decided, all right, we're gonna have to find um, some partners to work with who can execute our ideas at a level of quality and volume that we're happy with.
0: Is that an easy thing to find? Someone who can handle that kind of quality and especially
1: volume? No. <laughs> I mean, the sausage part was mainly me going to every single sausage maker I could find in the Bay Area. You know, we we did want to keep it local. We've, you know, visited many, many butchers and sausage makers, um, and there are many, many bad sausages around. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, sausage making is a non-trivial skill. You think, OK, it's just meat and fat spiced, ground up, stuffed into a casing. Like, how hard could it be? But it's one of these things where, like, the minutiae of the technique can make a huge difference in the quality of the final product. Um, you know, it, may, it mainly comes down to the, the the binding element, like making sure that you have the right level of salt and that it's the meat has been salted long enough that the proteins start to dissolve before you mix it, um, making sure that you mix it right and that you have the right ratio of fat to lean, and then also making sure that it stays chilled through the entire process and if any one of those things is off um, your sausage doesn't bind properly and and that's what you find is the problem with most sort of mediocre sausages like they could be flavored very well they could be they could be crazy and interesting but if they're not mixed properly they kind of crumble instead of having that sort of nice juicy snappy texture that i look for in a sausage and so finding someone who can do that um, was hard There was also the consideration of creating a sausage restaurant that could be vegan-friendly. So, one of my goals from the beginning was like vegan items on the menu that are not vegan by omission they 're just vegan by default um, and they 're delicious you know so we have a number of things like that um, but the the one that I was really excited about is a vegan donor kebab um, and for that I, w- I worked with a company called Impossible Meats. They make a vegan ground meat blend mostly out of wheat protein, um, but they add heme, which is a um it's a lot of what gives red meat it's sort of um, irony, bloody flavor, um, but it can also be derived from plant sources, um, and so it's like it's by far the best sort of meat available. Um, and so what we do is we spice it with, with Turkish spices, so cumin, um, Urfa Bieber chilies, um, sumac, and then we, we serve it as a... Um, well, initially what we were doing was we were, we were forming it into a, um, a cylinder and doing it in front of one of those donut kebab spits that sort of spins around and you shave it off. But the fat in this stuff is coconut oil, and coconut oil just melts at a slightly lower temperature than animal fat does. Um, so the fat would end up kind of melting out of it and it would just eventually just crumble off the spit. So that didn't end up working. It would have been so cool if we could get that to work. Now we're just forming it straight into like sort of hamburger style patties. So all the flavors there
0: Okay, so you talked about the food and the building, et cetera. What about the people? Um, how involved were you in hiring and training up kitchen and front of house?
1: I was, I mean, very involved in, in back of the house. And finding good people is by far the hardest thing. So when you're living in a place like New York or San Francisco, where the cost of living is so high, finding great people is very hard. E- even finding remotely reliable people, even before we opened, when we were, when we were training staff, we must have lost probably fifty percent, fifty percent turnover over the course of a few weeks. Wow, um, which is not abnormal, you know. Um- And luckily, you know, it's like one day we're there and like two of our cooks don't show up. What do we do? You know, one of them was on a bender and the other one just was just a no show. Luckily, the restaurant down the street, all the cooks there showed up that morning and the manager said, we're closing like you don't have a job anymore. So suddenly we had like 12 cooks just walk up to our front door saying, hey, can we have a job? Um, So there's never really a shortage of resumes uh, and applicants. It was finding reliable um, people, that's hard. What I've discovered in my years as a cook, um, and you played out exactly as expected here, was that it's much better to hire people like who give a shit, even if they have no previous experience or skills than to hire someone who has a great resume who doesn't really understand the concept. You know, our our number one kitchen hire, I think, is um, this this guy, um, Eric Droby, who is a career changer. He was in his 40s. Um, he worked at an office job, always loved cooking on the side, um, was a food lab follower. He stopped by my house once to give me some sausages he ma- and some sauerkraut he made <laughs> um, because he was proud of them. Um, and they were great. Uh-huh. Um, I thought they were great. Um, and then he said, hey, like, I think I've decided I want to be a cook. Would you give me a shot? I'm like, absolutely. Finding people who really care, that's the key, because you can you can always teach people skills, uh, but you can't teach people to give a And what about front of the house? Front of the house is also, it's actually probably even a little bit harder um, at the start because you have to really dangle this carrot in front of them because... During training and during the first month that we were doing friends and family meals, people are working and and they're getting paid, but they're not getting the same tips that they would. And so they have to realize, OK, like I'm putting in this work now, so in a month I'll be making much more money. But it's hard to, to find people who are willing to um, think about that.
0: So shortly before opening, you tweeted, in all caps, by the way, opening a restaurant is insane and I don't know why anyone in their right mind would choose to do it. <laughs> so... What's going on in the weeks and days just before
1: opening? I can tell you what was on my head when that tweet went out. Um, it was it was not actually related directly to the restaurant itself. It was it was more about its toll on my personal life and particularly my my family life and my marriage um, because. Uh, yeah, right. Restaurant is a is a harsh mistress. Um, during, during those three months I was in there, I, I would wake up, uh, take my daughter to daycare, go to the restaurant from 9 a.m. till 4, go pick up my daughter from daycare, bring her home, put her to bed, and then go back to the restaurant from 8 p.m. till 1 a.m. It had been like two and a half months where I had been basically never at home. You know, I, I saw my daughter for a few hours a day, but I basically never saw my wife. We lost the chance to sit down and talk together. The only time I ever saw her was when we were with our daughter, so we never really had any alone time it's very difficult when you're raising a child like to not be able to talk to your partner not even have the time to talk about things related to raising the child and the worst part of it was that no matter how how well you plan and you think to yourself all right this is the amount of work I'm going to have to put into this restaurant and I'm just going to say no after that it's really hard to say no when there's like 40 people whose jobs rely on you making this a success
0: Finally. Worst Hall was ready for its soft opening.
1: Investors, friends, and family. About 100 people. And everything was great. We had completely gutted the old bathrooms, retiled them in this beautiful blue tile, really nice wallpaper with these sort of pen and ink drawn um, animals and stuff. It was was a really nice bathroom. And the first night we had 100 people in, the toilets backed up, stopped working, and we had to shut down the bathrooms. And as it turns out, the waste line leaving one of the toilets had never been repaired or replaced in probably Decades and decades, um, and had a huge sag in it. And so we had to close for two weeks um, so that they could rip out all the tile we had just put in, uh, dig into the foundation, replace that. All of a sudden, we thought we were going to be ready to open the next week, and now it's like, all right, another two weeks and another thirty grand to fix the bathroom that we had never even considered might be a problem.
0: Coming up after the break... The busted
1: bathroom wasn't the only problem. It was a disaster. Major, major disaster. Some people were waiting over an hour for their food. Some people never got their food.
0: And how
1: does a new restaurant deal with bad reviews when literally everyone's a critic? Basic user 12345 says, This restaurant was terrible. The potatoes sucked. Well... I don't know what you define as good potatoes, so how is that helpful to me?
0: That's next, right after this. If you want to hear more Freakonomics Radio, you can find every episode going all the way back to 2010 on the Stitcher app and at Freakonomics.com. And you can always listen to the most recent three months' worth of episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by the Active Cash Credit Card. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases. Earn 2% cash rewards on that workout class you want to try and on the foam roller you need afterwards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at WellsFargo.com/slash active cash. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by FedEx, Dear Small and Medium Businesses. No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Kenji Lopez-Alt, rock star of the food writing world, decided after years on the sidelines to get back into the restaurant business with a place called Worst Hall in San Mateo, which started out as
1: a simple concept, a German beer hall serving nouveau-ish sausages. I was always one of these, I'd rather have influence and bring joy to people than have a lot of money type of career people, you know. And if the money comes along with it, then that's great as well. But I'd rather just be doing something I love.
0: Okay, so walk us through opening night, and I'm sure everything went exactly as it was planned, and everybody was thrilled, and it was perfect,
1: yes? <laughs> yeah. We had a sizable number of people in there, and that we were cooking food. People were ordering food. Tickets were coming in. We were firing it. Um, it was, I mean, it was a disaster, like major, major disaster. Some people were waiting over an hour for their food. Some people never got their food. It, it, it's those kinds of, it's, it's, it was a kind of night where we are like, these problems are insurmountable, like how the are we gonna fix this? Um, But, you know, we we decided like, all right, we'll focus on like a couple of the big problems first. When I tell them to you, they're gonna seem like stupid small things. It's like, well, why couldn't you just do that? You know, it's like, so one of them was that we have sausages and you get your choice of topping. So one of the problems was, communicating to the cooks on the line so in case you're not aware of how a restaurant kitchen works um, there's a there's a line which is a you know where all the stoves are where the counters with the little cutting boards are it's where the cooks the guys and the girls are actually making the food uh, and then there's a station called Expo the expediter um, and the expediter's job is to first of all act as a the liaison between the front of the house and the back of the house um, but more importantly their expediter's job is to coordinate everybody in the back of the house so that dishes come out at the same time so that everyone in the back of the house like sort of knows where they're, what they're doing. So essentially, they're sort of the general um, managing the army back there. On opening night, we had all the toppings back on the line. Um, and the expediter was—I was expediting, and I was just calling out. you saying, like, all right, like, one hot Italian with speck and cherry pepper relish, one bratwurst with sauerkraut. Um, and it's, it's a lot of information to take in when you have a full restaurant and there's 100 people there, and you're cooking, say, like, 25, 30 sausages at a time, and each one has their own designated topping— it's a lot of information for the person on the line actually cooking it and plating it to take in. Um, And so every single sausage had this huge delay where, you know, maybe they whipped the wrong topping on it and we'd have to refire it. They would, you know, yell out and and everything is really noisy and we can't hear each other. And, you know, and once you have these tiny little problems, um, that can lead to huge, huge backups because the customers, they don't care what problems you have back there. They they want once once they're seated, they want to start ordering food Um, and they don't care that you already have a full board of tickets and that the grill is completely full. They don't care that you screwed up one order and you have to refire it. Um, those tickets are just going to keep coming and coming and coming. So you have this ticket printer machine that's spitting out these tickets constantly. Um, and you're constantly struggling to try and catch up with it. And that puts more and more stress on you. So you make you make more mistakes. The people on the line make more mistakes. And it can be these tiny little things that add to um, the likelihood of making a mistake that can throw a wrench in the entire operation. And that's essentially what happened that first night. So the second night what we did was we took those toppings, we took them off the line and put them next to the expediter's station, so next to my station, so that all they had to remember was which sausages they were cooking. Then they would pass the sausages to me right before I handed it to a server. I would put the topping on. I had the ticket right in front of me. It was easy for me to read. And that, I mean, it smoothed things over. Like. Unbelievably so. It's like it's like a couple seconds of extra work on the on the cooks part. Um, you know, it translated from a sausage taking over an hour to get to a customer because there was like this huge backlog of tickets um, to customers getting their sausages in about eight minutes. There was another major problem they discovered only on opening night, and it's one that we didn't resolve until relatively recently. It had to do with the pretzels. So I'm also a partner at a bakery called Bach House, and they make all of our pretzels um, and all of our bread. Really wonderful pretzels, but we serve them hot. So we, we, um, we were trying to figure out how do we get these pretzels that were baked that morning and delivered to us, how do we serve them hot and fresh? And, you know, the, the obvious thing is, all right, well, when someone orders a pretzel, put it in the oven, let it get hot, and then we serve it. This was a problem in a couple different ways. Um, one of them was that bachhaus they were salting their pretzels before they came to us. What happens with pretzel salt is that it draws out moisture from the pretzels. So after eight hours or so, um, some of the moisture from the pretzels beads up on the surface of the pretzels, and then it leaves these kind of splotchy, wet marks, which is not good. Um, and the salt is all gone. Um, so we're like, OK, so we have to salt our pretzel sort of That's adding another layer of stuff we have to do. And the only oven that we have back on the line is next to the fryer station. And the fry guy is extremely busy with the potatoes. And we also do a chicken schnitzel sandwich. Um, and so adding pretzels on top of that to him became very difficult. So for the early nights, we were firing pretzels to order in the oven. And that was another one of those things that like, seemed like it's a thing that takes two seconds, but it just piled on to um, the likelihood that we were going to screw something up. So what was the pretzel salting solution? Well, we found a much more efficient way of salting them. So, one of the cooks had this idea to um, take a squeeze bottle, um, cut off the top until it was big enough that pretzel salt could flow through it. Um, and now, what we do is we just spray the pretzels and draw a line, you know, a trace the outline with the squeeze bottle, and that clears up all the space. So, what you just described,
0: plainly, these are things that most people who eat in restaurants would never, ever, ever think about. And they shouldn't have to think about. But you have to think about it, but as you're describing it, it strikes me that you being who you are and the way that you like to work and the way that you do take an empirical and scientific approach to food and cooking and so on, that you were driven to solve these problems and get it right. Is that often the difference between a restaurant that works and one that doesn't, which is that you have to be driven to constantly adjust? Solve problems like that that are going to come up. Do most restaurants really try as hard as you just
1: described? Most restaurants really try as hard. Any good chef cares deeply about the quality, and any good restaurant owner cares deeply about the quality of what they're putting out. So I, I don't think I'm unique in that regard at all. I think maybe we we tend to me and my partners Tyson and Adam. We have a lot of sit down meetings where we analyze problems and try and solve them. So maybe maybe we do that a little bit more than other restaurants, but you know that that's my skill. I've worked for chefs that seem to have an innate skill to just be able to figure things out on the fly, you know, or or be able to work harder and faster to be able to solve those problems. You know, people people attack those problems in different ways, but any good restaurant owner is going to recognize those problems and try and solve it in their own way.
0: Um, I'm curious how much you pay attention to, I guess, reviews of any sort. I mean, if you'd open a restaurant 10, certainly 20 years ago, there's so much less feedback then and now some people feel swamped by it, some people feel a lot of it is disingenuous. I know you've said in the past that Yelp, um, let's see, in fact, this is from a tweet of yours. <laughs> Yelp is and has always been the worst place to look for decent reviews. Shady business practices and reviews by people who I know nothing about and have no reason to trust their opinion, even on the off chance they actually dined at the restaurant you're rating. So talk about that for a minute, your experience <laughs> with Yelp and or other online
1: reviews. So it's difficult to gain value from them for me. You mean as a consumer or a producer? As a consumer, I mean, to some degree, you you know, as a producer, there there is there there is a little bit of value to it. Um, but it, it, especially if you start looking at trends and see, all right, the people who are complaining, what are they complaining about? you know, at the, at the beginning when we opened it was it was service. And that was a you know, some very legitimate feedback on that. You didn't need online reviews to know that was a problem, I gather, right? We did not need online. Rev- There's very little that that um I've read, I've seen in Yelp um that we didn't already realize was a problem. you know as as a as a consumer of Yelp, I, I find Yelp useful as a map of what restaurants are around. Um, but it's it's hard to trust opinions. A very good professional review, like you don't necessarily have to agree with the reviewer's point of view on what is good and what's not. Um, but if you have an idea of what they think is good, then they, then they tell you whether this restaurant met those expectations. And then you can sort of gauge, all right, well, do I agree with whether that's good or not? And that's what a good restaurant review will do. Whereas on, on Yelp, it's like someone, basic user 12345 says, this restaurant was terrible. The potatoes sucked. It's like, well... <laughs> <laughs> i don't I don't know what you define as good potatoes, so how is that helpful to me? You know the problem is that everybody eats, right? So everybody considers himself right. I guess a legitimate critic, which yeah. yeah, and I mean, <laughs> you can't totally discount that fact, can you? No, no, you can't. you know, but but at the end of the day, it's like you know i'm I'm involved in this project because I want to be i want I want to have my name on it. i want I want to be proud of what we're putting out. And so at some point, you just have to sort of stick to your guns and say. This is, this is what I believe is good, and I'm not going to change that just because some people say they they disagree that it's good. And if your idea of what is good is so far off from what most people think is good, then maybe you're in trouble and you're you're going to go out of business. But I'm of the mind that I'd, I'd rather lose a little business and stick to what I believe is true than to just pander um, to everybody to try and make the most money or um You know, which is hard to explain to partners and investors. (laughs) But at the end of the day, you know, like as a a food writer, I think I do have a pretty good pulse of what people think is good.
0: Right. So overall on Yelp, Worst Hall is doing pretty well, averaging about three and a half out of five stars. So let me read you one Yelp review and hear your response. Okay. (laughs) I I honestly haven't looked at Yelp reviews since like the second month after we opened, so we'll see. (laughs) This is from just over a month ago. This is from Andrew R. He writes... I was really disappointed. I expected more. Not that I had high expectations. They were modest, honestly, but it fell below that bar as well. For one, the service was not that great, For two, the food just isn't that good. It's okay, like, you would eat it if you were hungry. (laughs) But another sausage would probably satisfy you more. And I like a split-top bun, because you can grill both sides like they do here. But when it's split only halfway down, there's a lot of bread with no meat at the bottom. And that's terrible. Cut that bun all the way down. It'll be better. Trust me. So,
1: that's Andrew R. What does Kenji L. say? Well, I'll start from the end of it and work back. believe it or not, we, we tested how far to cut the bun extensively <laughs> before opening. Um, and, and, and trust me when I say it's not better to cut it too far because the, the buns um, end up falling apart. They, it doesn't stand right. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that, that sounds all fair, you know, like those seem like legitimate concerns. Um, if I, if I was at the restaurant, I would have, I, I would definitely have loved to talk to him and gotten a little more details about exactly what they were disappointed with. Um, you know, what, what is it about the sausage that you didn't like? And to his point about, you know, sausages being not great, you know, Yeah, like I fully admit, sometimes, like any restaurant or any business, we have consistency issues now and then, and we work our best to to make sure that those don't happen. And and every day gets better.
0: Okay, here's a professional review. This is Peter Lawrence Kane in SF Weekly. He writes, the quality of the food is high and it is consistent. The thing is, considering Lopez-Alt's eminently well-deserved reputation for being a demystifier of culinary techniques, Worstall feels a little short of the gosh-wow factor longtime fans might clamor for. Maybe that's not entirely fair. After all,
1: it's exactly what it claims to be. What's your take on that, Kenji? So I fully agree with that. This is, again, one of those things where it's like, what happened to the restaurant between the initial concept and what customers expect? And the initial concept was like, all right, we're going to serve some damn good sausages, we're going to make our own sauerkraut, it's going to be good sauerkraut, but it's still sausages and sauerkraut, you know, and, and there's only so far that can go, you know, as far as like gosh darn wow factor. This is one of those things where the concept of the res- the restaurant on paper turned out very different from what the restaurant is now. Um, once Once my name got attached to it and there started being this sort of media attention to it, it turns out, People are coming there for dinner. They're not coming there to drink. We started as a beer hall, but we're not really a beer hall anymore. We're we're a restaurant. You know that that's been one of the challenges since opening is like coming to terms with that and realizing, you know what, like some of the stuff we initially thought isn't going to work because customers are coming in with different expectations. Any restaurant takes a while to find its legs. Um, I think for us, maybe it's taken a little bit longer just because it was such a big shift from what we had initially planned compared to what customers perceive. I see that maybe yesterday or within within the last little while, you tweeted
0: a new menu item that's starting soon. Maybe, maybe it's already started by now. Started today.
1: Okay, congratulations. So I was at the restaurant all morning, you know, training the staff and making sure that the cooks knew how it worked. So
0: this is tomato mayo toast with grilled corn vinaigrette and a corn soup with paprika oil and shishito peppers. So that's not what I think of as beer hall food. Was it the clientele who drove it primarily? In other words, were people confused when they came originally because they know your name and they think it was going to be more of a sit-down knife and fork situation?
1: You know, I think that's part of it. I I definitely saw comments saying, like, I expected the menu to be a little more kenji than what it is, you know, because it's like sausages. Like, you know, I don't write that much about sausages. I don't eat that many sausages. I like them and we cook them (laughs) well, but... um, It doesn't exactly, like, scream Kenji or Food Lab or whatever. So, yeah, so part of, you know, part of this revamping process has been like, all right, how do we make this menu more me?
0: So from what I've read, you own 12% of the restaurant and 20% of any new venture with these partners? It's something like that, yeah. That's ballpark correct. Would you have had the same share of ownership had you just acted as a sort of consulting founding chef as opposed to uh, roll up your sleeves fully involved?
1: No, my partners are actually very understanding of, you know, the entire situation and the fact that I'm now what got more involved than I was planning on. Um, And so actually, you know, initially, like it was going to be basically just a fee plus a smaller percentage of ownership. The
0: big question I have then really is so far, do you feel overall that it's worth it. And I guess another way of putting that is, it, you know, if I came to you tomorrow, Kenji, with an idea that you liked, an idea for a restaurant, maybe a site for a restaurant, and a potentially worthwhile partnership, what do you do? Do you succumb or do you
1: refrain this time? <laughs> uh, I would say the restaurant on its own in a, in a bubble, like detached from every other part of my life, absolutely worth it. Um, I don't mind putting in hours and hours and hours of work even for little to no play, You know, like I haven't made any money off this restaurant yet and I don't plan on making any money for a while until, until we pay off all our investors. But, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. So if, if, someone, if someone came to me right now and, and asked me if I wanted to do this restaurant again, I would probably say no, only because it cost me three months of being with my daughter. Um, and that was, you know, a price that I wasn't expecting to have to pay at the beginning and one that made me deeply sad as it was happening um, and also in retrospect. So, um, so I don't regret anything I did with the restaurant. I do regret how it affected um, my personal life and my family. But we learned those lessons.
0: <laughs> okay, final question. Let's say that maybe this is when your daughter is in school. Maybe this is when your daughter's in college even. But let's say I come to you and... I want you to work with me to open a new restaurant. What is the dream concept, whether it's cuisine or style or location? Like, what is the restaurant that you absolutely would sacrifice again almost your entire life to do?
1: It would be something much smaller than Worst Halls. We're opening a couple more Worst Halls in in the coming years, but we've talked about other restaurant concepts as well. And I think if we were to work on something together again, it would be something much smaller. The idea I've been throwing out at them is a Korean fried chicken sandwich place, which is a recipe that I've done at a number of pop-ups I think is extremely delicious, but it's essentially, you know, chicken brined in kimchi juice and then done sort of uh, like a Nashville hot chicken style. But instead of the Nashville hot chicken oil that goes on there, we um, we make like a sauce with Korean chili flakes and a bunch of different Korean flavors. And it. it's super delicious. And the kind of thing that I think would do well is a fast casual thing. You know, that, that would basically be it for me. Like I want to feed a lot of people and make them happy. You know, I don't want to open like an ego restaurant. I don't want people to come to, you know, worship at the altar of Kenji Lopez-Alt come for this experience. Um, I want a place that, you know, people say, hey, that's a good sandwich. I'm going to have that once a week.
0: (laughs) We had that conversation with Kenji Lopez-Alt back in July, and we caught up with him again a few weeks ago for an update.
1: So first of all, I'm just curious, how's life? I mean, life is great now. Um, yeah, at home, I found a much better balance between uh, <laughs> restaurant and home life after that sort of craziness of opening. You know, we've hired some more people in to help um, fill some management voids in the restaurant, um, which means that I do get to spend a lot more time with my daughter and working on my other projects without having to freak out about what's going on um, at the restaurant. Did your marriage recover from the
0: stress of opening?
1: Yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely in much better shape and... Um, and I have a much better understanding of what it means to overcommit myself to things, and um, <laughs> um, so yes, every, everything on that front is, uh, is going much better.
0: Okay, and then importantly,
1: how's Worst Hall going? Um, Worst is going well. Um, I think the last time we talked, we were sort of in this position where it was having a little bit of an identity crisis because we had planned for it one way at the beginning, and then people were coming and expecting something differently, so we've you know been slowly trying to push it in that direction, and we'll have completely transitioned our menu into a more sit-down experience for fork and knife, um, all that. But, you know, things are going well. We've never had trouble getting people in the door. We've never had trouble with revenue, per se. Um, it's The trouble has always been with profit, um, as maybe is true with most businesses. So, you know, that's been our concern for the last six months or so. Is like, all right, we're making this money. We get people in, in the door. How do we actually turn that into profit so we can so we can actually start breaking even and making money and, and, and paying back our investors and all that? So a lot of economists would
0: say, well, the first and probably second and third and fourth steps toward bridging the revenue profit gap would be is very, 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 very simple, especially since you said that the demand is really strong, right? You're not having any trouble filling it, just raise prices. So why not do that?
1: Well, part of it is our goal is to make sure that families and neighborhood people can come in and feel good about coming in. And as it is right now, you know, I would say among our top three complaints is price already. And so part of our goal, especially with these new menu changes, is how do we give people an experience that they are willing to pay a little bit more for that they still see value in? And originally with the menu, the problem was Everything came on a bun, um, and there is a limit to what people will pay for a sandwich and what people feel comfortable paying for a sandwich, despite the quality of the ingredients inside, despite the amount of labor that goes into all that. Like, There's a certain amount you can charge for a sandwich, and people will not pay any more. That's not the case with fork-and-knife plates. Um, People, you know, they see more value in a fork-and-knife plate. You know, we do this chicken schnitzel sandwich. We could just take off the bun and serve the exact same plate and charge four bucks more for it, and people wouldn't bat an eye. The restaurant's original
0: concept, you will recall, was German Beer Hall goes to California.
1: I mean, it's still California Beer Hall. You know, we still have sausages and German-themed things. But customers
0: who were fans of Kenji
1: Lopez-Alt's
0: food writing were expecting a menu that was more Kenji-fied. And so it has become more Kenji-fied.
1: They're serving uh, cacio e pepe. It's like a quick Roman version of macaroni and cheese. But with Germanic noodles rather than Italian. So it's it's our house that we pan fry in brown butter, um, which is sort of the traditional way to do spetzel. Also, smash burgers and Korean-style fried chicken. Yeah, it was something it was something we resisted at the beginning. Like, should we put a burger on? like people know me for a burger? Do we need another place that serves a burger? And then we just decided, yeah, let's people want a burger, like it's good, people are gonna order it, let's just do it. I mean, that and the fried chicken are probably our two top sellers. Once we got past that mental hurdle of being like, we don't have to be strictly German, like it, it was a pretty easy call at that point. It's like, you know, fried chicken, burgers, people love making them, they're easy to prep. The You know, they'll they'll help with this profit problem because both of them are high profit dishes compared to sausage, which are among our lowest profit dishes because they take, you know, so much more work.
0: So you mentioned that one of the biggest problems is just, personnel and turnover, both in the kitchen and front of the house. And I'm curious to hear how you're doing on that
1: front with retention. So, you know, we have a number of people who've been around since the very beginning. Um, there there was a bit of turnover when we changed executive chefs. So I, I recently hired a new executive chef. And, you know, so when that management change happened, um, there there was turnover. But, you know, we were, we were expecting it because, you know, people are loyal to their bosses. and um, But things seem to be settling down again. Why did you need a new one? It's not that our previous chef was um, was bad at his job. It's just that the needs that we had in terms of um, efficiency and really managing like the volume that we were doing was just something that he wasn't, didn't have quite enough experience at. Oh, you know, one thing I should mention that actually really helped with our staff morale um, when these changes were happening is that we hired a a translator, which I think is good advice for any business that that, that has a lot of employees that, that aren't very, very fluent in English. We So we hired someone to come in for an entire day and then we scheduled every Spanish speaking employee to come in to sit down. Yeah.
0: So it was really about Communication to understand the flow of work and so on?
1: No, it was less about the flow of work and more about um, the management change, the new chef, and the transition in menu. Um, but a lot of it was also to get their feedback and to find out what they needed from us um, in order to be happy in their work. Okay, really important question. How are the toilets holding up now? <laughs> uh, toilet situation's fine. You know, we, we put in the money to do the big fix, and it's all, uh, it's all fine.
0: So I understand that you've also, in the midst of all this, put yourself in the restaurant in the middle of a MAGA controversy. You tweeted in response to public events in D.C., you tweeted, it hasn't happened yet, but if you come to my restaurant wearing a MAGA cap, you aren't getting served, same as if you come in wearing a swastika, white hood, or any other symbol of intolerance and hate. So that's what you tweeted. What happened next?
1: (laughs) And what happened next was, well, nothing for a few days, and then... I got picked up by um, some newspapers and then went around national news. And that's when trouble happened. It, it was a mistake on a number of fronts for me to say that. The first one and the one that I was really concerned about was it was a mistake the way I treated my staff and my partners, um, because that's my personal Twitter account. It was something I said kind of off the cuff, and I never talked to my partners about it. And, it, you know, I realized afterwards that, you know, I just put my my partners and especially my staff in a really tough position because now there's all this anger being directed at them and they had nothing to do with it. It was just me shooting off my mouth. The other thing I wanna say is that people very fairly read that as an attack on on individuals um, and as an attack on maybe on themselves after reading it, um, an attack on Republicans. And, and I can understand why it was read that way. And all I can say is that in my head, um, it was really not about individuals, it was about the, the symbol, the symbol of the hat. You know, I very admittedly live in a in a liberal bubble, you know, like I I live in the Bay Area. I obviously I get exposed to a lot of people from around the country, you know, my including my family. And if you go just outside the Bay Area, of course, there's lots of lots of right wing people, lots of Republicans. And I and I get along fine with everyone. But, you know, when you see that hat at rallies where there's hateful things being said or you see that hat being worn by people who are doing hateful things, it comes on to take a specific meaning that makes me uncomfortable I guess my my big regret is it came out in a way that closed down discussion as opposed to open discussion.
0: You said it caused a lot of anger. Were people in your restaurant, whether partners or employees, were they angry because it endangered their livelihood or were they angry on a level beyond that? Uh,
1: I mean, to be honest, I I don't really want to talk about my partners or my staff because yeah, I don't want to bring any of that up again because I've already sort of put them in an uncomfortable position. It's been tough, you know, but kind of been realizing that, you know, I'm in this position where I kind of, I want to have my cake and eat it too, where um, it's like, I'm a normal guy. Like I feel, I I feel like just any other schlub on the internet. I spend my days doing normal people things like puttering around the house and fixing things and repairing the furnace. And so it's like, yeah, I'll just talk the way I talk on, on the internet. But then, yeah, especially in the last couple of years, it's like, I have this platform and it's sort of my responsibility to use it. And that's sort of an impulse control thing. And that's something, you know, my wife tells me all the time, like, you can't you can't do this because like whether you want it or not, you're well known. And you can't just talk like this because it's going to get us in trouble. It's not it's not just about getting you in trouble. It's going to get our family in trouble. It's it is something that I very consciously have been thinking about. Um, You know, like this year, I sort of made a I made a New Year's resolution that if I make any kind of political comments that I won't respond back to commenters. How are you doing with that resolution? Good, actually, I have pretty much dropped to zero in terms of responding back. I also promised I wouldn't make any more ad hominem attacks on social media, um, which the one time I broke that was when I made an ad hominem attack against everybody who wears a MAGA hat, and that got me into trouble.
0: Soon enough, Lopez-Alt will be taking a break from America and its politics.
1: I'm actually planning, uh, with my wife and my daughter, we're going to be taking three months in Colombia. The idea is researching a book— on Colombian cuisine written for an American audience, which doesn't really exist right now.
0: And where does your passion for that cuisine come from?
1: Well, my my wife is Colombian, and uh, we spend a lot of time down there. And it's a huge country, um, hugely varied in terms of geography and culture and cuisine. There's the Andes, there's coastal regions, there's plains, there's rainforest, um, there's deserts with a widely varied cuisine as well that I think is kind of underrepresented. And I feel like I have a good sort of inside track on that.
0: What happens if or when the next time you open a restaurant, how do you come into it thinking differently, knowing now what you know?
1: I take less on myself. (laughs) I delegate more. Yeah, I think I spend more time figuring out the the personnel issue as opposed to the fun concept issue and and figuring out, you know, how do we make this happen where I don't have to upturn my life and give up everything else to do it? Um, And and if I can't do it, then then that just means... I won't do it you know like I've, I've sort of come to this place where it's like all right when the when the first restaurant um, when the opportunity came to me it's like I don't want to die thinking what if like this is an opportunity to do something I've always thought about doing it wasn't a lifelong dream but like I thought about doing it I should do it and at this point it's like you know what like I, I don't need to do it again like if, if the opportunity comes up and I can find a way to ensure that I don't have to um, upend my life again to do it then I would but um, but I'm I'm perfectly content saying no.
0: Coming up next time, a special live episode of Freakonomics Radio. The new head of New York City's underperforming subway system tells us what he's doing about it. It's about fixing leaks. It's about uh, renewing components. It's about unblocking drains. We also hear about one of the biggest problems with street traffic.
1: The politics of parking has been certainly for me one of the most eye-opening parts of, of my job.
0: We learn about the politics of disgust. The more easily disgusted people say they are, the more likely they are to be toward the right of the scale. And an intriguing new carbon capture technology. So, yes, I was on a team at a national lab from the DOE that invented and kind of studied this technology. Energy, traffic, disgust. Don't miss it. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Harry Huggins. Our staff also includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, Zach Lipinski, and Corinne Wallace. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by the Hitchhikers all the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The entire archive is available on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com where we also publish transcripts and show notes. If you want to hear the entire archive ad-free plus lots of bonus episodes, go to StitcherPremium.com slash Freakonomics. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn or via email at radio at Freakonomics Radio also plays on many NPR stations. Please check your local station for details. If they don't carry it, tell them they should. As always, thank you for listening.
1: Stitcher Want to make mom's day?